Software Engineering Radio, Episode 43, Extreme Programming, Part 2. Hi, everybody. Um, this is Alex and Arno again speaking about um, extreme programming. Actually, this is the second part um, of the episodes about extreme programming. And this episode is taking a more overall process related and business and context and organization related look at extreme programming. Um, the first episode explained the more technical hands on side of things and this time we're, we'll start by looking at the practices of extreme programming, but we're now going to look at those practices that are more related to the overall process, to the context in which extreme programming is. And then we'll look at the context of a project doing XP, how to get the buy-in, how to get it started, how, what rhythm it has, how deliverables are done, what sort of contracts you can do. So extreme programming in the context. So shall we dig in? Yeah, and I guess we should start with the user stories, which are mm -hmm. great. What are user um, stories? It's not like bad time stories, is it? <laughs> Maybe sometimes. <laughs> um, user stories are the um, the heartbeat of an XP project. Actually, they are the requirements, but they are more than this. Um, in XP, you don't do um, a lot of extensive um, requirement work. You don't do you, a lot of use case diagrams and all this, that stuff. Um, what you do is actually you 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 ask your customer to give you the story or the feature he wants to have. Uh, that's why it's called a user story. So it, it is kind of a use case centric approach. It's it's feature driven. Um, and the story is actually, it behaves or, or feels like a story um, for your customer. And this story um, is written down on an index card and um, it's just a one or two sentence thing. You, you don't do all the, the deep and, and, and fancy requirement stuff you can requirement collecting stuff you can do there. Um, it's more like a promise for communication. That's how it's called in, in some XP literature. So, so story might be a little misleading here. Actually, you just take an index card and write one or two sentences that explain yeah. at the ab abstraction layer of the customer some feature um, that, or something that should be in the, um, in the system you're building. Exactly. So something like calculate rates for whatever. Um, it, it's just a mm -hmm. simple sentence long enough to, to um, that the customer is able to remember what he wanted uh, once he has written this and everybody can can um, remember what, what it means or uh, imagine what it means, but not enough to code actually the, the things down. So you need your customer uh, afterwards um, to to ask what he wants mm -hmm. and do all the, the test stuff. The requirements whatever. engineering means you have some people, on-site customers or proxies of the on-site customer or whatever way you want to implement it, and they sort of take mm -hmm. index cards, writing sort of memos for that only they really understand that give uh, markers for them to explain more in more detail later, and then they put them in a cardboard box, and this cardboard box is sort of the requirements document. Exactly. And... 
Um, the, these cards um, will be taken out by developers afterwards. We, we will touch this when we, we do the pl uh, discuss the planning game and can be b brought to your, your desktop um, when you use the task. So there are more than just um, a requirement document, actually. They are an artifact to... to Yeah, to the heartbeat of the project is called. Um, so you use it um, as a as a token to to drive your project. Mm -hmm. Actually, so yeah, we'll go into more detail when we're looking at the planning game. But just to to give a short idea to put this in context, um, the developers or the, these cards are prioritized by the customer for the iterations, and then mm -hmm. the developers ask for details on the most highly prioritized cards. And then they estimate them, and then there's a negotiation which goes into this first, um, into this iteration, and only one iteration is planned in advance, basically. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And afterwards, the the cards are getting or thrown pinned away on the wall to show how much work got or done, or whatever. <laughs> okay, exactly. but we'll go into more detail later. Um, this, but you said was yeah. um, heartbeats. I always thought the um, this the iterations were the heartbeat, which actually is the next um, practice. Yeah, um, depends on your your um, picture of heartbeat. Um, Actually, the, the iteration are the 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 the, the, the metric, the, the the beat or the, the timely beat. Yes, for for the process stuff, um, but the stories are the driving factor. Without stories, your team gets um, no more um, things to do. So actually, that, that once happened to me in a project. I worked in XP project um, where we had an, well, not an on-site customer, but our customer uh, or the, the guy who, who was in the on-site customer role actually uh, hadn't had the time to do new stories, to, to get new input in our Our project actually run dry, so it's it's the the pushing uh, factor in in XP. Yeah, that's why. I yeah, yeah. I was I was just joking because so. um, it is not obvious. Yeah. It will become obvious when we go into the planning game, but it is the heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it you 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 touched iterations. Um, next primary practice are the the weekly cycles, so called, um, which are the iterations. Where you do all the stuff you usually do in a in a huge project, um, you you do the planning, you do implementation, uh, testing, really. So the the whole iteration cycle usually fits into one or um, two weeks. Uh, depends a bit mm -hmm. on taste how long it is, but it's called. So the, but the idea right is now. to actually have deliverable software at the end of the week. So it's not just hypothetical, but exactly. you actually burn a CD or whatever and give it to yeah. whoever is interested in it to receive feedback. Yeah. So this is actually releases. Actually. It's not just hypothetical um, yeah. labels on the ver um, versioning system. It really is an integrated tested release that is given out. It's a complete project, if you want. A, a complete cycle th that you do. Mm -hmm. a complete release, yes, every week. How much overhead weeks. does this sort of... Um, release involved. I mean, in, I, I've been in projects where the, or the overhead of getting a release done was several weeks all by mm -hmm. itself. So <laughs> how, how much yeah. overhead does that involve? Yeah, that actually could be a problem. Um, not so much because of the overhead on the, the team side, because usually when you do an XP project, you do everything you can do releases in a simple way. So uh, everything in in an XP project is is uh, focused to 
makes things automated. You have your unit test, so you don't need an, a long beta or whatever testing phase before you can release it. So everything in XP does it or tries to to make these simple releases or, or um, not so costly releases. Um, but the problem often, or at least in my um, past, was that the customer isn't able to handle this. <laughs> um, even if you do uh, two weekly releases, not so many customers have the time to do tests on mm -hmm. two weekly releases. So um, actually, I had some problems in, in, in the past. Yeah. But well, I think even if the customer doesn't, isn't able to handle this release, it's still valuable because it helps to focus and helps to, to stay yeah, close to having a releasable software. It helps to, um, yeah, to, to think about small steps that, um, lead to incremental value and, and to divide the work into little things that do not break anything big. Absolutely correct. But it's in my, or it was, it's tougher to to get a team to do a real release every week if no one cares for it. So mm -hmm. um, there, there was some problem for me. And yes, you're right. It's not just for getting feedback from the customer. It's it's important to a lot of um, integration work as early as possible because uh, otherwise you, you get a huge uh, heap you have to do sometime at the end of the project. So doing releases every week is good for the project alone, even if feedback isn't mm. the necessary point here. But it's it's tough to get a team to do it uh, regularly um, or so often um, when no one really yeah, cares for it exactly. outside of the one, team. One th more word of caution here. In my experience, this release does not have to meet all the usual criteria for a release. Um, mm. Usually, if you actually do release, um, there are, let's say, data migration requirements, mm. and which are which take effort that usually is not necessary for every single of these weekly releases. They're just sort of to give the customer yeah. a hands-on feeling. And also, yeah. you, in my experience, um, these are not as thoroughly tested as actually final releases need yeah. to be. They are just to show the customer yeah. the direction the project is going in. So if it is less stable or not as well integrated with other systems as is desirable and needs to be done in the end, that is okay for this sort of releases, just to keep the overhead low and exactly, enable yeah. rapid feedback. Mm -hmm. Okay, but um, besides these weekly cycles, there are also the quarterly cycles, which are not so much iteration cycles, but uh, you have to do the, well, call it higher-level management stuff. You have to... to uh, plan your real releases for for customers, or if you have a product and not a project, um, you you have to do marketing stuff and plan all this time uh, uh, stuff. You have to plan resources, people, uh, timetables, um, all this stuff, and um, that's done in a somewhat quarterly um, yeah cycle. Mm -hmm. Sort of to get the sort of thing done that needs to be done long in advance. You, um, yeah. In the everyday work, you don't want to bother with thinking ahead and planning long and long ahead, which is part of the XP philosophy way of doing things. But sometimes mm -hmm. you need to do that. So once every quarter or at whatever frequency, you sit down, take the time to really think ahead and sort of try to guess the future. Yeah. But still, it's important to to mention here that the detail level is different from what other 
development processes do in this quarterly cycle. So you don't do detailed timetable planning what some guy does in three months uh, on a daily <laughs> basis. That's not the idea. The idea is to get the big picture actually and uh, afterwards you, you have to correct your, your maybe false uh, plannings anyway. So it, it's really the, the, the high level stuff and that's necessary to, to keep a company um, mm -hmm. flowing. So I guess that were the, the big um yes the cycle stuff the the time time stuff um we we have some other primary practices to, to discuss um that are not so well related or I, I don't see a, a common topic uh first one is slack um which is um Well, the idea is simple. Just plan Slack um, because you need it. You, you need to clean up your code. You need to place around. Uh, you need to do research. You need to to learn stuff. So you you have to plan in Slack mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, I'm not sure how this was handled in the first edition of XP, but uh, I guess there was no Slack actually. Well, in, it uh, actually, I, I think we remember. went into this in the first episode when we discussed pair programming, and actually that is where it is in the first episode, yeah. because pair programming tends yeah. to keep you busy all the time and tends to conflict, tends to, well, tends to put peer pressure on you, even if it... No one really expects you to focus all the time. You sort of want to impress others by not being the first one to say, I need some time off. So um, this is closely related to pair programming, I think. And you, you mm. need, really need to create a culture where it's okay to say, I need to some time to do my emails. I need some time to do research, yeah. whatever. So actually to allot whatever number of hours to encourage people to actually take this slack Yeah, but actually, um, also for the higher level stuff, not only the, the 10 minute breaks while pair programming, um, the, the, the second edition of the book actually uh, says you, you have to plan for time out and stuff like that. So, um, it, it's also on a higher level. So someone uh, might say, um, I, I need to do research. Give me, I'll be back next week. Give me a month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this sort of thing actually happens without XP, and in XP you really need to make it explicit to, yeah. to encourage people. Yeah, exactly. So, next um, practice. Uh, yeah, this is really one, one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, mine too. I have a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. <right now. laughs> um, okay, What what's the idea? Um, you have to set a marker how long you build might take and every time you 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 go beyond this uh, time limit um do something to get be, uh, below again so the the idea is um and this timing level is mostly um well there, there's no real rule how to find mm. it or where it has to be but the, well, the, the rule of thumb that i like uh, to use is developers need to feel comfortable with it the build people should yeah. not feel that the build gets in the way of getting things done Yeah, exactly. And a 10 minute is, is a good, um, well, a good idea how, where a limit is, where a team gets into trouble. Yeah, there. actually, I, um, I would place the limit a lot lower. Um, somewhere from two to five minutes is my rule of thumb. But anyway, yeah, yeah the, the, uh, this yeah. obviously varies from team to team. Yeah. And one problem here is, uh, of course, or what, of course, that's 
very dependent on the technology mm -hmm. you use. Um, that, that is one of the things um, you can, well, at least you can do uh, when you use stuff like Smalltalk or Java or C Sharp or whatever. Um, my project right now is a huge C++ project and it's very hard yeah. to do it uh, below two Right, hours. yeah, <laughs> so, this is, right, but this is sort of a problem of C++. Yeah, exactly. So um, you see some of the techniques are actually even technology dependent uh, in XP and, and come from the background where the guys um, worked before. They, they did Smalltalk, mm. they did Java. Um, of course, they did C++ projects too, but, but their main focus is on these techniques. So you might get into trouble with some of the techniques in different mm -hmm. environments. Yeah, but, but let's take a look at what this 10-minute build really is about. I mean, the idea is that every developer is able to perform a complete automated build on her yeah. own workstation regularly mm -hmm. in order to execute the tests, and executing the tests is part yeah. of this build. So the important thing is that people don't just use their IDE to um, sort of, um, oh, there's a bug over there, but I'll just ignore that. It's very popular with people who use Eclipse. Um, but actually, our, everybody is able to do and real build the, to execute the build script that actually goes into the production build as well and execute mm. this build script which compiles everything and um, also executes all the tests on a regular basis. This is sort of an enabling technique for, um, for rapid integration, for um, especially for test-driven development. But what can I do if I can't do it simply? I mean... Um, as I said, C++ takes some time to compile and uh, computers are as fast as they are now. And if my build right now takes four hours, okay, my, maybe I can optimize it to take two hours, but 10 minutes are well, is way well, there out are of techniques for C++ that um, speed up your build. For example, um, decouple the system into several compilation units and mm -hmm. then um, decouple the builds and check in the results of the compilation into the version control system so that you only need to recompile the um, um, the compilation unit you're actually, you've actually made changes to and link it to the checked-in compilation units of the other um, yeah, the other compilation units. Okay, so 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 your answer is actually uh, do whatever you can to to get to a to a short um, build integration. Exactly, build. yes. Because yes. I mean, uh, th there is a lot of effort, and some t I know projects where even the link uh, linker run um, takes longer. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, nevertheless, you say do everything you can to, I to would, get yes, there. Yes, I would say that, and is, I mean otherwise. You probably extreme programming is not the process for you, I would say. But especially mm -hmm. keep down the time as as far as you can, because otherwise test-driven development will not be done. Because you need to build the system in order to run your tests. And if building the system takes two hours, you just will not run your tests after every single change. But we were getting to the to the next um, practice. Actually, yeah. I think. Uh, is continuous integration. What I wanted to say, exactly. Well, I, I think we, a lot of um, what we said for the ten-minute build, yeah, will fits good to the continuous mm -hmm. integration topic. Um, the idea is, of course, to to uh, integrate as soon as often, uh, even continuous, 
um, as possible because the, the cost of integration grows over time exponentially. So um, the idea is to, to do it as soon as possible, get feedback as mm -hmm. soon as possible. And that's why, and um, that's why we talked uh, so much about the 10 minute build. Um, to do this, your build needs to be fast because anytime you want to check in, um, the idea is to, to get an integration build as mm -hmm. soon as you check in. Yeah, this, this is immediately. The yeah. So it's the ideal. There are tools yeah. in different languages, for example, Cruise Control for Java, that just does just this. Yeah. It's coupled to the version control system, and every time someone commits a change, an automatic build is started, and if it fails, mails go out. This is sort of the, the high, high ideal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you, you take a look at the higher level, um, the, the basic idea is the same with the weekly cycle. I mean, even the weekly cycle with the weekly release is some kind of the idea to integrate as soon as possible, to get feedback mm. as soon as possible. Same idea yeah, here. Exactly. And taking your comment, uh, going back to your comments about C++, um, I have numbers from the 90s um, that even the people at Microsoft working on Windows NT did a complete build every night. And yeah, so exactly. obviously this probably took more hardware than just a single workstation. But yeah. um, even there, they did this continuous integration as continuously as was possible, which was every night. And they ran yeah. what they called smoke tests, uh, in some, yeah. some little test suite that showed if at least the rudimentary functionality worked. So this is possible even for huge projects done in statically yeah. linked languages. Yeah. As far as I know, they, they kept the, the, um, they did the same thing. <laughs> it just wasn't 10 minutes. Um, they, they, they set a time limit and they kept their build uh, under this time limit for a very, very long time. Don't know if it's still true, but, um, it, it worked for them for a long, long time. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the practices that gets discarded quite frequently, actually, because man, because it's so yeah. simple to sort of just ignore this. Oh, the break, the build broke. I'll just fix that later. So, so this requires discipline and requires backing by management in order to um, to keep things going, to to keep this practice alive, yeah. especially in the beginning. Um, and the problem is, I mean. I, <laughs> you've probably been in, in this as well. There's this sort of thing I like to call integration hell. Um, you've been working on a project mm. for, for a couple of months and have different people, different, different small teams working on different parts. Pe communication didn't work too well. And then a, a month before the final shipment, you sort of throw everything <laughs> over the fence to the central build and integration and test team and things won't even compile. And after two weeks, yeah. you get them to compile it, find out nothing works together. And this is really hell because it's very, very difficult to fix. This is the exponential thing you mentioned in the beginning. Um, if yeah. the, um, different parts of the system don't initially or oftentimes they don't initially fit together exactly. And if you find that out after one hour or after 10 minutes or whatever, it's very easy to fix because you still know what the problem might be. If you find, if you find out after a week, it's hard to fix because you, there are so many subtle dependencies that were added, and it's hard to find out which part causes the problems. And after a month or so, it's basically impossible to really fix. And it's a huge mm. effort that needs to go in there. So the idea is to keep the different parts together, to avoid, to, not to, to avoid giving them the chance to go in different directions. And this is really, really important to do 
even and if your system is so big that you can't do it really continuously, do it at least every night. And if yeah. you didn't do that so far, you might want to start by doing it once a week, but the um, but with the goal of getting to once every night. This is also goes back to other practices. Um, small working in small increments, yeah. um, because um, if yeah you want to to split your changes into small things that can be integrated and then tested in the integration. Exactly, and if you uh, remember back our first XP episode, um, you see the the value behind is feedback. I I mean, it, it's you can take all the practices we discussed right now and map them back to the values. I, I guess maybe it's it's getting more yeah understandable the, the value discussion from the first episode if you just um, try to map the practices and mm -hmm. the values sometimes. So let's jump to the last private mm -hmm. practice, incremental, incremental mm -hmm. design. Um, which is... I think it's one uh, of the most controversial practices of all. Okay, what's the idea? The idea is um, to postpone any design decision uh, to a at the latest responsible point in time. Um, you don't do a big design upfront in your project. Um, you, you do it as late as possible, actually. So um, just when you get in your new new story, your new user story, um, and it does need a change in architecture um, in, in design, do it when you need it, not front up. Just when you know, yes, I need it right now, not anything in it. Yeah, I'd like to advice. illustrate that with a little story, which um, is about Kent. I mean, these, this practice and how to interpret it was controversial among the different XP people. But um, I read somewhere that Kent Beck said that even for, for business systems, he would not start by saying, We, okay, so when we start the system, we know that we will need a relational database, but postpone <laughs> even such fundamental um, architectural decisions until you really found out that you did need a relational database, which would obviously be quite, quite early usually, but still he would not um, start with this assumption, but have even such fundamental assumptions be driven by the actual development process, by feedback. I I guess that gave some discussion. Yeah, the, the, some of the other XP, XP people um, said they wouldn't go as far as that. But that's the idea, to sort of step yeah. back and leave behind um, assumptions that might or might not apply to this system. Because in the beginning, the idea is, in the beginning, yeah. you don't really know much about the system. And some systems um, sound like them, that like a relational debate, database is a good idea, but later you found out it isn't. And then, um, yeah, yeah. You, you might want to take it out. Yeah. And the the idea behind this, of course, is um, the experience shows that you do a lot of things in advance. You don't need any time in the future. So a lot of people, um, architects, developers, project managers, whatever, everybody adds his part there um, to to make systems more um, future safe, or how, yeah. how would you call it? And actually, um, it's much more effort put into making things uh, in advance that doesn't 
get needed anytime in future, uh, than it would take to make even hard changes in architecture when it comes because the system is much smaller if you put out all this, uh, stuff and um, just do the things you really, really need. Yeah, exactly. More. The idea or one of the drivers behind extreme programming is to make changes easy, to make changes cheap. And you get the yeah. best benefit out of this cheapness if you don't actually don't spend the effort to design up front. I mean, you can do that. It doesn't yeah. do much harm usually, or it might even do harm. But anyway, even if it doesn't do harm, you don't have much benefit from it because... Um, Making the changes later isn't very costly. So the idea is, in the beginning, you don't really know if you need a relational database or not. In for for, well, for some systems, uh, for some for most systems that have a relational database, I'd say you know that upfront and that's okay. I mean, you don't have to discard all your experience. But I'll just keep mm. this, stay with this example anyway. Let's say there's a system you don't really know if it needs a relational database. So you start out one way or the other without spending much time analyzing all the requirements that, that might come up later, you just start with the system, and once you find out that your initial decision was wrong, that's fine. You just change it then because that's cheaper and gets the overall mm -hmm. job done better and faster than if you had spent the time in the beginning to think about this. This is the idea behind extreme programming, refactoring later. And actually there, um, I mean, some of you might know the, this... Um, Cost of change curve um, that that um, yeah will get taught in the the universities and uh, is printed in a lot of books, which basically says um, the later you do a change or you you find something to change, uh, the the more it will cost. And this is not linear, but it's expen uh, exponential. And the idea of XP is here to uh, keep this curve as flat as possible to make change. Yeah, not costly, uh, in, in future. And, um, when you have done this and it's, it's done through unit tests, through pair programming, through this, um, incremental design stuff, um, you can work completely different, uh, in your project and other techniques do work. So one of the, the very basic assumptions is to, to change this cost of change curve actually. Otherwise, uh, it wouldn't work. Exactly. So all these practices play their part in, um, I mean, the, the, the traditional curve is exponential. Um, it's like um, if changing something during, during analysis costs one unit of money, it's 10 units of money during architecture, 10, uh, 100 during design, and 1,000 during implementation, that sort of thing. Mm. And the idea, oh, well, yep. the claim that um, Kent Beck makes for extreme programming that this curve is flat, the cost does not vary it is just as costly to make the change um, during development as it would be during analysis. Okay, so what you say, we just do a walkthrough of an XP project. So let's say um, we are approached by someone who says, build me a, um, build me a system that um, helps me sell things through the Internet. Mm-hmm. And we are an XP shop, or we want to do things the XP way. What do we do? First thing here to mention is um, XP is not just a programming team or process thing. It it even influences the way, or it it massively influences the way you interact with your customer. Mm -hmm. 
So um, what you don't do, uh, let's take it this way, um, you don't get an, an, uh, a, a contract or do a contract with a customer where it's exactly written down what he wants uh, at a fixed time point. So um, you you have to... to um, Explain your customer that you're XP shop, that you work with him together to find or to build the solution actually, um, that his involvement is important and that you only can win, can, can uh, be successful if you build your software mm -hmm. together. And he has an important part here. You both do risk sharing here. Um, it's, it's not fixed price contract, whatever, ho however you call it. Um, it's, it feels different for, for the customer. And, uh, actually, even if XP became, uh, became, um, well, more common in the last few years, um, my experience is you still have to, to, um, yeah, explain your customer that it's that way, and because he he usually has no experience mm -hmm. doing a pro so, projects. So one thing you were saying way. is um, XP means it's not a fixed price project, but actually sort of you, um, it's an ongoing thing, time and material payment. Yeah. And um, yeah. at some point in time, the customer can say, okay, this is enough. I'll not. Um, I don't want you to go on and I'll just take what you have now. Exactly. So how um, yeah. this is quite interesting because um, oftentimes customers want to know how cost how much things cost in advance. They need to allocate their budgets, yeah. that sort of thing. How do you deal with that in an, in an extreme programming setting? Mm, I don't want to discuss it in in deep in depth here because it's it's a actually really a complicated thing. Um, easiest way is to to of course um, do time and material project, but that doesn't work for uh, every customer. Um, you, you, there are actually different, um, kind of, uh, contracts you can do that, that works. Uh, you, you can, um, well, the customer can fix a budget, but then you have to, um, the requirements are not fixed. You have to leave one of the, the key drivers of the project open to, to make it possible to, to reach your goals. So, um, Complicated issue. Um, a lot to read on, on the web on this, even uh, contracts, mm -hmm. after contracts, how to work this out. Um, but maybe a bit mm -hmm. too much for, okay. for here to discuss it. So the idea is um, it works best with time and material, but there are different models. Um, you can read it up on the web. And I mean, obviously, if a customer approaches us, we can give him an estimate of how much it will cost. Yeah. It's just that this is not exactly. a binding estimate because the requirements are not yeah. binding so it's sort of like yeah. a trustful relationship. Um, we honest, give, yeah. give the customer an honest estima estimate, and the customer trusts us that this is an honest estimate. So, yeah, yeah. it's based on trust. And, and when you take this first step, um, which is usually the hardest, because uh, if you don't know your customer, this trust thing is um, hard, of course. Um, when you're really on the project, usually a customer very or gets a feeling that you you have a trustful relationship because he is on side with you actually uh, he has guys in mm. your team and sees how you work so um this is usually really a startup problem problem but mm -hmm. might be a hard mm -hmm. startup problem actually okay so so let's say um okay we estimate it will take 3 months and cost you um 300000 um euros 
Mm -hmm. So what happens then? The customer says, oh, great, that's my budget, okay. that's fine with me, that meets my deadlines. Yeah. So what what we've done uh, here is actually our quarterly cycle. We had this um, overview planning, the, this mm -hmm. rough planning. Um, what comes next is, um, yeah, we really jump very, very fast into our weekly cycles, into our, into our iterations. So, so basically um, um, we what, sort of get together our team of four people, and say, yeah. here's your room, decorate it any way you want, create your own pro productive atmosphere, and get started. Getting started means you write your first user stories. Your team and your on-site customer, and that's uh, maybe we should go into more depth here uh, right now, um, but your team and your on-site customer sit together in the, in, in the room and work out the first set of user stories. So, so actually, at the moment, so, uh, at, when the contract is made between us and our customer, the other company that gives us the contract, um, there is no fixed set of requirements that anyone had to agree on that is sort of postponed. You sort of say, okay, we've got yep. a rough idea from one meeting, let's say, and then um, we want to get going, and for that we need user stories. How do we get those, and who yep. is this ominous on-site customer? Okay, let's start with the on-site customer. Um, often discussed point, um, there are the, the basic idea or the, f the first um, explanations were um, it's a guy from your customer uh, who knows how to or who actually works with the software afterwards. That's important. It's not uh, some manager from there who tries to um, guess what the software needs. It's a, a person who actually has to work with the software afterwards. So he, he knows what really is important from business side. But he also needs uh, the competence to ma make decisions, what comes in, what doesn't come in. Um, and this is already very ooh, uh, hard to find. Someone who works with software has the competence to decide and knows every aspect of the software. So um, what... Yeah, one of the things that's uh, changed over the years with with XP um, is uh, it doesn't have to be one person. It it might be a team um, of persons for different aspects. But and that's um, still the important part of it. Um, he he or the team has to be on site with you. He is actually uh, the whole day with your team in in the the team room and works together with you. He does tests, functional tests. He does user stories. He does prioritization of user stories, whatever. Um, but he is actually there. He is not someone in a different company who where you can call him. Uh, he has mm -hmm. to be on site. So this with is you. actually one one thing is that you have someone on site in the same room who is empowered to make binding decisions. For the com for the, for yeah. your customer, and yeah. who is also an sort of expert who really knows what the system mm -hmm. should feel like, so that those decisions will actually be sound and um, actually be supported and lead to a working system. And yeah. the third thing, exactly. what I that understood is, um, this person or group of persons needs should be on site, become part of the team, which is a huge step of building trust between you and your customer, yeah. building trust in both directions um, so that your, your progress will be visible, your approach to things will be visible, and also the, um, you, will, and you will have the benefit, or we will have the benefit of actually um, receiving quick feedback and receiving quick decisions.
So we have this, let's say we have one on-site customer, we have, the company we're working for is ideal, they actually send us one of the end users, um, and this person is on-site with our um, four people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the first thing they to do, do together is uh, write user stories. So they, they get uh, uh, some cards, index cards, and um, the on-site customer ideally writes uh, the, the most important uh, user stories down on the cards. Uh, he, he writes just a bunch of them uh, down on the cards and um, tries to, of course, write the most important. Of course, in XP, you, as you have this... Um, uh, idea of saying or making the uh, it possible for the customer to say the project is finished now and all the important stuff is in and the stuff that now isn't implemented is not so important. So you prioritize your uh, user stories by business priority, whatever mm -hmm. that means, by, by, by value for your customer. So the idea, of course, is that the on-site customer writes down the most important stories okay, so, to him. So in day one, the, the team yeah. gets together and starts discussing things and writing down user stories. How, how much time do they spend writing yeah. these stories before they actually dig into, before they boot their computers and start coding? Okay, I, I guess as we really, really started first iteration here and uh, team and customer don't know each other, it, it takes longer than usual. Usually, uh, it, it would take just a few hours, so um, maximum a day. Um, but as it's the first time, it, it might be um, a bit longer, of course, because you have to to get known to each other and stuff like that. So okay, but it's it's, it's um, so it's really really short. It's not spending it's weeks really, really in short. upfront analysis. Of so the idea is to get started coding as quickly as possible. Uh, as had a few hours mm -hmm. maximum. So. Um, of course, this is not, um, it's, it sounds a bit simple. Uh, it's not that simple in, in uh, real world that the customer sits down and writes his story and the developers sit around him and, and uh, watch him writing. <laughs> of course, it's, it's a dialogue. He explains what it does mean uh, that the developers get an idea of what this story has said. That's, it's just one or two sentences actually mean to him, what, what he really uh, once when he says uh, calculate mm. rate or whatever. So it's mm -hmm. it's a discussion here. Okay, so already. let's say after two days we have our first set of um, of stories and these stories are, and the, the, our on-site customer says, okay, this set of stories is sufficient at first. Let's get started with them. So what happens next? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the developer... Um, give rough estimates how long it takes to implement a story. So, so um, you, you give them the cards or the customer gives them the cards and they, they try to figure out, to, to think about how long it simply takes to, to implement these stories. Um, one interesting point here, um, the, the, of course, for, Especially the, when you do it the first time, you think in, in days or, um, real days or whatever. Um, one thing is, uh, he, to mention here, important thing is, um, that you may, or that your, your estimates are relative. So, um, you take your first card and say, your team says, it takes whatever, one day. Let's take, uh, say it takes one day. So you, then you take the next card and, um, 
you get a more precise estimate usually if you not just uh, think about, okay, I think it takes two days, um, but you compare the both stories. You, you, you estimate relatively. So uh, you, you look at your second story and say, oh, I guess it takes double the time from our first story. So usually you get a better estimate this mm -hmm. way. Um, the, and f very important, we will see, is, see in the next iteration why these relative estimates are important. For the first iteration, mm -hmm. it doesn't make that mu huge difference, of course. But what, what about, what about so, the basic infrastructure that needs to be in place before, I mean, uh, the on-site customer probably won't think about um, setting up the... Mm -hmm. um, The surflet engine, let's say it's a Java project, setting up the surflet mm -hmm. engine and getting all the basic plumbing in place that probably won't be part of any of the yeah. stories and needs to be done before for every single of the every single story that the cust or onset customer wrote down probably. Mm. Um, again, depends on on your your start position. Usually, when you're a project shop, um, you have a lot in place. I mean, uh, build um, environment, all that stuff. Usually, is is easy to set up. If you're completely new to business, um, it might take some while to to set these things, all these things up, because there's a lot, as you said, test environments and service yeah, engines uh, and yeah, whatever. One, one thing is the actual um, infrastructure, but then I meant the the specific code, like um, being able yeah. to sort of creating the database table, the operational relational mapping layer, whatever. That exactly. sort of thing is probably not visible and in any of the user stories and needs to be done before anything that is of actual business value can be done. Yeah, uh, and that's that's a completely different thing from from these first time startup th stuff because um, as said we have an um, incremental design where you you have to change your architecture and develop your architecture on the fly all the time. So um, if you have um, normal um, additional effort for for building these kind of infrastructure, servlet engine integration, whatever, you you estimate it together with your story. It might be that there are very, very huge, um, and huge means as large as a normal user story is, um, things to do. Um, for example, it takes a day to whatever, install a servlet engine and set well, it let, up let's correctly say, and let's integrate say create it. create the basic infrastructure classes for customers and for products and um, create the object relational mapping layer that actually makes them available <laughs> for the business logic. That's um, oh, I, I have a few problems with this one. Um, first, um, if the, the list was too long, I don't think um, it's a good way. And maybe it, this is the the uh, link back to the discussion big, um, upfront design from um, exactly. Ken Beck that's there. what I was so uh, I wouldn't really do a complete um, infrastructure setup with the first okay, feature. So let's say that so, let's, let's get maybe concrete. Let's say the user stories are go something like this. One user story that is really important is um, enter a new product into the product database, sort of administration administrative mm -hmm. work, and the other mm -hmm. thing is um, allow an an end user to view the list of products with their prices in the browser. But so those are the two user stories mm -hmm. that were prioritized most highly. Okay. Um, I would say for, for the first one, I would say um, 
it's if you estimate it, uh, you will discuss all the things you 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 mentioned. Uh, I need a servlet engine, what a lot, whatever, all the the points. And uh, if you put all the estimates in, your user story gets too large, so you break it usually up. And if you afterwards have two user user stories, you have to take care um, that that your user story still. So basically, what you do is um, introduce a new user story for your whatever that database uh, okay, setup, for so example. That, so you enter, so you create and sort of technical user stories, and explain to the on-site yeah. customer that these technical user stories need need to be done before any of the original user stories can be done. But uh, and the, that's why it's it's so so hard uh, actually to explain. Uh, first of all. Always write it in, in customer language, I would call it. Don't say, I need a uh, relational database with an OUR mapper or whatever, because the customer doesn't know what you mean. He, he doesn't see any mm -hmm. value in that. So just always describe it in, in sentences that your customer actually knows what's the benefit for him because afterwards he has to decide if you will do it or not. So uh, if it's something like I will introduce Hibernate to our um, mapping stuff, the customer will not choose this user story anytime. So that's not really good. Just describe it in, in How would you do that for these, your for these stories, for these pro um, things? Like getting the infrastructure code written that you need for getting the basic a basic architecture in place that can support the other user stories that you start with, how would you phrase that? Um, and, and that's the the, the second important um, point I already men mentioned. For uh, I wouldn't do it all in one story. Uh, I don't think it's it's good to to have all infrastructure in in one story. You have to. I don't think any feature. Um, that, that is small enough to get through as a user story uh, should be that large because afterwards you implement all your architecture front up and just the business stuff afterwards. Usually you, you can get away and uh, implement some feature just entering uh, it in a web mask, for example. You don't need the database right now. Second thing, you make the, the, the um, thing persistent. So um, split it up into smaller mm -hmm. parts that still give uh, customer value and explain what the value is. So introducing your uh, relation database, for example, gives the customer the value that the entered product, whatever, uh, is available the second time he okay. logs in. So mm -hmm. uh, split it up, split it up um, in in business um, perspective, um, not in technical perspective, and. Um, don't do all the infrastructure stuff front up. The, the, you need some stuff, of course, as I said, build environment and all these things are um, different kind of story. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. the the, norm, the usual business stuff, um, you shouldn't implement all this front up because then you have this big mm -hmm. design up front even, and even worse, you implement it. <laughs> okay, uh, so we have the initial set of um, user stories and they were discussed with a, with a development Mem with the developing members of the team, and there are some stories were added um, with the wording at fr uh, of the terminology of the customer, yeah. and then the customer makes the decision which of these go into the first iteration. Exactly. Based um, on the estimates. As said, you split, you, you maybe even merge some user stories if they are too small there, 
um, to to that may, tracking is, uh, makes sense. Uh, so um, you have your your file set, and afterwards the customer and only the customer has the right to decide which stories go into your iteration and which not. Um, takes the cards and. Um, you have estimates in the first time you you usually get um, or start with something like uh, days or whatever so time mm -hmm. efforts um, so you can calculate how many of the the stories you roughly want to do in this first iteration and the customers uh, actually he sorts them by priority mm -hmm. so you you get away uh, from the prop I, I mean I am sure you you to have this problem sometimes that you have 200 priority <laughs> one features to implement and non-priority two mm -hmm. features. So uh, bring them in the actual order or the customer has to bring them in the actual order how to yeah implement mm -hmm. them. Okay, so now we have a list of um, user stories that should go into our first iteration of one week. And then we actually start yep. coding, getting splitting into pairs yep. and... Um, start coding, writing our tests, setting, um, emerging the um, continuous build, and at the end of this week, we have sort of finished, let's say. Exactly. Um, just just to mention the name, um, what we discussed right now, um, the, the splitting of user stories, the estimation and the prioritization uh, is called planning game in mm -hmm. XP terminology. So, um, yes, you do first the planning game, then all the development with all the practices we already discussed, test first um, the development. And uh, at the end of um, the iteration, the one or two week iteration, you um, should have, and that's the rule, so um, you must have um, running software that fulfills the stories that you your customer prioritized. Mm -hmm. So, what does the customer do? Of course, in, in these two weeks after prioritization uh, of the user stories, um, testing, simply. Um, anytime you, you uh, get a feature implemented, the customer has, first of all, he, he does interactive testing, but also uh, if he uses uh, some test frameworks like uh, FIT, for example, he can do with the help of a developer, maybe, um, automated acceptance mm -hmm. tests. So, what do we have? We, we have a complete run in an iteration. Um, what needs to be done additionally? Um, all the, well, after iteration works, so-called. Um, you have the release. You have now the way, uh, the possibility to calculate the metrics. You you have a number of stories um, implemented. Let's say we have four stories implemented. You have um, the estimates, the initial estimates, and with all these uh, information, you can roughly estimate how much or how many uh, user stories you will able to do in the next iteration. The the idea is called yesterday's weather. You you just look back and see uh, I don't know in in one week uh, we can do the work of three um, estimated days for example so next week we usually should be able to do the same mm -hmm. amount of works that's that's how um, metrics or, or speed is actually team speed is calculated and used to estimate how long your project mm -hmm. yeah will take so we we now have um, 
a complete uh, run through through an iteration how it works and um, what what happens next? Well, next iteration. So we start again with mm -hmm. the planning game. Um, we now have all the information from our previous iteration, so uh, we know how much our oh, how many stories will fit in an iteration, how the team works together. The all gets a bit more mm -hmm. fluent and it gets better by time and. Um, That's also true for, for the metric stuff. Um, the more iterations uh, you have, the better the, the speed is actually, yeah, the, the more reliable your, your speed estimates are on and this way. So we have one iteration so, and then the next and then the next and then the next. Um, when is the yeah. project actually finished? I mean, there's always some new wishes, mm. some new user stories. Exactly. Um, very simple. When the customer says it's finished. So... When you're, you're running out of stories or important stories or stories not important enough that the customer wants you to give money to implement them, um, the, the project is finished. And that's one of the, the great, uh, things for your customer actually when you, and you have to sell XP to your customer because it's a lot more work than usual projects. Um, he gets or he just has to pay exactly for the things he needs, not more, not less. So very, great thing actually for a customer mm -hmm. so actually the customer can pull the plug on a project anytime he wants sort of terminate the, pro the, the contract at a week's notice that sort of thing That's at least the the XP uh, perspective on this thing. I mean, in 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 real life, you usually have uh, contracts and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So uh, you would handle it a bit different mm -hmm. in most situations. Nevertheless, uh, in theory and from from XP perspective, um, yes, that would be the the okay. way it goes. So we talked a lot about how to get buy-in of a customer for XP. But that's only mm -hmm. one of the, the, the groups you have to sell XP to. The other group is the people inside your own company. So let's say yeah. one of our listeners wants to get XP started in their company. How do they get it? How do they get, do they get buy-in? How do they get it started? Um, buy-in... Um, There's a lot of political stuff you have to, to know all the, the advantages of XP and there are a lot. I'm, I'm actually a huge XP fan. So, um, I'm really convinced that XP is one of the best development processes right now. So, um, just learn the advantages of it and learn how to sell it. Um, how do I start XP? Well, the best idea in my opinion still is get someone who really did it before. Uh, nothing can compare to this. Uh, no book reading, no mm. podcast, nothing uh, comparable. Um, you need someone who really has done it before because it actually is hard to implement. Even if it sounds very, very easy, it is hard, believe me. Um, so, um, next thing is, if you have someone or not, I hope you get someone who really did it before, um, test if you really can deal with test-driven development and pair programming be because that's not everybody's thing. I mean, especially pair programming um, is a hard thing uh, and not everybody likes it. And so um, test if your team or your, your peers and you do really feel or get comfortable with um, pair programming and test-driven development. Um, and then the practical stuff just start with the user stories, as simple as that. 
So if you don't get management buy-in, um, one of the things that I found with experience is it sometimes actually works to just do it without the explicit mm. approval of management. If you're convinced yep. that it actually saves effort and increases speed and increases quality, one way to do it yep. is just implement it, start doing it subversively. Yep. Um, and then after a week or two when management notices, you can have your first results that you can actually show. Yeah. Can work, but um, on-site customer is always a problem there. You you need a customer that, that helps you here. And um, if your management and your customer um, are the same person or same whatever, um, you might into, run into a problem mm -hmm. here. But yes, I, I would agree. Uh, and a lot of the XP techniques are, are really can be factored out, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, know what you do as that um, global code ownership without unit tests can be uh, yeah, not I mean, a good idea. Unit tests are basically the foundation for um, unit yeah. tests and refactoring is basically the foundation for all the other practices, I think. Yeah. But um, speaking of the problems with the on-site customer, I think we are getting to the problems that you might run into, problems and limitations. Mm -hmm. And I think um, having an on-site customer is, um, I mean, certainly it's difficult if your management does not agree, but it's generally a problem, I would think, to get someone who's mm. actually an end user to get them to spend 100% of their time in your one room together with the software team and work on this project. For for most customers I've been yeah, working yeah. with, this yeah. would just not be an option. Yeah, and and not only he has to be all the time with your team, he has to be competent. Um, he he has to know what to do, and he has to have the rights to decide yeah. what to do. So, uh, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I unfortunately that's that's so seldom. Uh, I mean, um, if you think about it, it's it's strange that it's such a huge problem because usually the customer should have, um, yeah, the the should have the pressure to get a result from you and should be uh, should want to to get, get yeah. engaged to all this stuff but mm. um in in practice it's a, yeah, a I think huge problem i would say the, the hugest problem yeah, i agree and i think it's much of the reason is the culture because for decades software has been developing differently with communication through documents that i think yeah but i think one yeah. thing that actually works quite well although it is not xp in the strict sense anymore is to have some sort of proxy for the customer on site. Mm. Um, the sort of um, lowest profile approach would be to have one member of, of your local team be the person to communicate with the customer, spend yeah. time on the phone reading, writing email, maybe even reading the specifications that are there in, in writing to sort of build up knowledge and then also be the person to negotiate um, decisions with the relevant people at the customer site. Mm -hmm. So this person would then become the a proxy for the actual customer and take the role of on-site customer. It's not quite as good as having the actual person who makes the decisions on-site, but it's a workable approach if you just can't get someone. Yeah. And maybe one idea to add here. Um, you can could argue that um, XP makes this thing explicit, but um, how could another development process really work without something like an ex uh, on-site customer? So uh, I, I guess it's really an, an, an usual problem to any software project. And just because XP really states that, uh, I'm not sure if it's worse than a different or other pro um, yeah, well, process. Yeah. In a way, of, you're obviously right, but then other processes address this problem 
in different ways. For example, by having people, by forcing people to actually think about, spend time thinking about their requirements. And of course, those requirement documents will never be perfect, but they will, they usually give you a better understanding of the, the actual um, things that need to be done than just writing user stories up front. So, yeah, but you need time too for you, you this. You need time, so, but uh, the, the, it's much easier to get the specification documents than to um, to get an, an on-site customer. Those are just two different yeah. approaches to, to solving the same problem, and the on-site customer is the solution that leads to better software, and at least that's yeah. what I'm convinced of. But still, um, writing the specification documents is the usual approach that customers are used to. Okay, next problem for, uh, from my side, um, the, all the social aspects, pair programming, all this stuff. Um, I, I often heard um, XP just works for senior developers who are really <laughs> yeah. great developers because they have to know everything yeah. to do uh, design I on the fly too, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But in my experience, that's not the problem. The problem are the social aspects, actually. The, the people have to communicate in a different way, have to communicate um, all the time have to be, have to feel responsible, have to take responsibility for, for stuff, act proactive, do, uh, peer decisions, all that stuff. Uh, it's, it's not, technology is not the problem. Programming is not the problem, actually, mm -hmm. in my experience. Uh, all the social aspects are really, really difficult. And if you have the, the wrong team here, you might end up in a mm -hmm. disaster. Yeah, I agree. One one variety of these um, things that are uh, one of one of these reasons that is often given against XP against um, pair program that sort of thing is um, I mean in XP every person works on every single part of the technology so every person works on the database mm. code if there's a database every person works on the graphical user interface code um, every person works with XML um, and whatever so. I heard people say that this means everyone needs to be an expert on these things, which is also really not true. I mean, obviously, you need to have at least one person um, in, on the team that knows these technologies you're going to use. Otherwise, you're in trouble anyway. You need to give people time to learn it, whatever. So let's assume you have at least one person for each of these things. Then the usual approach would be if someone wants to do some work on the database, to just get this person who knows the database and pair up with this person. So actually, it, is, it works very well if people are not senior developers because it yeah. helps to spread the limited knowledge throughout the team to help people to learn from one another. Even if, I mean, it's always difficult to develop, to develop software if you don't have any senior developers. If you have no one with experience, you're in trouble anyway. But even, but even <laughs> then, XP would help. Because um, f yeah. there are two people thinking about the same design decision at the same time, and if one person feels unsure about this, they would discuss it, and so you would have a team that is comfortable with the design you, you're, you're having. So the whole team is comfortable with the whole design, knows the whole design, that sort of thing, and refactors things. So even in such a situation with no single senior developer, you're in less, let's see, you're not out of trouble, but you're in less trouble than you'd be with other approaches. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, anything else to Yeah, add? well, there's one prejudice against extreme programming that I would like to, to talk about, um, maybe to wrap up the episode. Um, and that is that extreme programming, well, actually, this is often said about agile development as a whole, that extreme programming is just hacking. 
extreme programming is just yeah. like, oh, we don't want to, to spend time writing documents, doing testing, all these things we don't like. Let's just um, get to the keyboard, let's dig into the code and do some hacking. And this is really a prejudice that has given agile development quite a bad name. And I think this is a huge misconception and it's very important to address this at, at the management level if you want to do agile development because if a project goes wrong, um, I've heard managers sort of sort of joking about saying, oh, we're doing it agile now. Meaning we're, we've left behind all sort of organized process. No one knows what's going on. And this is just. <laughs> we don't do any yeah, documentation. We just left all the documentation and the planning and, and the testing and anything. Yeah. And this is a huge misconception. Actually, extreme programming is the single most disciplined process that I know. Um, it yeah. requires very much. It's a very, very, it's very strict. I mean, the, um, if you do extreme programming, there's, no line of code that goes into the system that was not reviewed by a second programmer. Um, yeah. In extreme programming, no code gets written unless there's a user story for this code and the customer prioritized it saying this goes in. If you do extreme programming, yeah. means that you do, um, you do no, write no code or, well, basically no code that is not tested by a unit test that is run continually by all the developers. They're done many times every day. So it's very, very disciplined. Um, Not only there, uh, extreme programming also says just on a, on a minute basis what to do, when to switch keyboards while pair programming. It's it's really, really tough. I mean, uh, most other um, methods uh, just say, do your coding right. and not anything more. Well, I they, mean, they it's, say, it's really and write detailed. these two dozen documents afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really detailed and really it it needs discipline. Mm, right. Very much this discipline. brings me to one thing I'd like to add, and that is a prejudice that in um, extreme programming and agile development there is no documentation. Actually, this is nonsense because the customer can say can write a user story at any point in time saying I want documentation, and then of course you write documentation. So it, it just makes it explicit um, that this takes effort, and the customer decides how much documentation the customer wants. Just as an aside, um, I think this is one of the other yeah. prejudices. But getting back to this yeah. um, thing about hacking and programming, actually, um, extreme programming is very disciplined, and but but this prejudice shows how important it is to actually do it wholeheartedly. If you just yeah. say, um, oh, "Well, I'll do the planning game, but pair programming and refactoring and unit testing are not for me," you'll be in loads of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and especially mm. unit testing. We're getting back to this again and again and again. Yeah. Unit testing is the fundamental, the, the most fundamental practice. And, well, it goes together with refactoring usually. So refactoring and unit testing are the single most fundamental practice on which everything else builds. If you don't have that, nothing will work. So, um, actually, yeah, actually, but, oh, yeah? But uh, there's one uh, true part uh, to to this prejudice I, actually i think uh, extreme programming is much more mm, code centric uh, than most other development processes it's much more focused on the the actual stuff that gets to the customer the the real um yeah code mm -hmm. actually so um it is much more 
coding-centric, hacking-centric, if you want, uh, than uh, other pro processes, but that doesn't mean it's not disciplined. Exactly. Um, it's, yeah, it, it takes some switching of the priorities of the approach to programming in the developers. I mean, one thing is giving up code ownership, sharing responsibility for every line of code. Another thing is to learn to read and write unit tests, which brings us to the episode on unit testing we're going to do, which is really, really important. But this is a different approach um, to, if you want to understand code, to not expect there to be lots of documentation documents that you can read. I mean, those, it's okay if they're there, but they are often outdated anyway. So, but the, um, it's a skill that actually needs to be learned. It takes, it doesn't take very much practice, but it takes some practice to read good unit tests in order to understand what code is about. It also means that you need to clean up the design continuously for the code to be understandable from the code itself, from the unit tests, to have good names. All these refactorings are important. If you leave them out, the code won't be understandable and you're in trouble. But if you have um, good unit tests and good names and good structure overall, then it's not, not very difficult to extract the architecture even and the design from the code itself, especially if there is a team that, and the, the, the whole team knows about the design decisions and the trade-offs involved, and everyone is familiar with different parts of the system. So these things work only if you take the whole bunch of them, if you actually do unit tests, if you do refactoring, if you clean up things, and if you avoid code ownership, and because you share responsibility and knowledge of the code with all developers. And if, but if you do these, then actually XP isn't far from hacking. It's quite the opposite. Actually, it means that everyone f takes responsibility for every change and people work together. And there is good documentation in the form of knowledge that is spread and good unit tests and good design. Okay. So, as we are already have one of our longest episodes, I guess we should uh, end here. Um, anything else to add? Give XP a try and give Agile development a try, but especially XP, start with unit testing, refactoring, and if you're familiar with that, go to pair programming and add the other practices. Give it a try. It's a great experience, and it really brings a team together. Um, if you get the chance, do it. Yes, I hope we didn't uh, keep you away with our two long episodes here. It's not as hard as it sounds here. Definitely not. Yeah, well, I think this about wraps it up. Thanks for listening, and yeah, hear you next time. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music. 
as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under a Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.